Well, the Lord's good to us. I've been continuing uh, this series in John. Uh, so this morning we're going to be in John chapter 5. If you want to take your Bibles and turn there. One of the things that's kind of been, uh, I guess, uh, hurts my heart a little bit is that we're starting to see things in our culture changing in regards to the belief about who Jesus is. Um, we see, you know, if I talk to other pastors and men that are in the ministry and, and they start talking about where the church is gonna be five, 10, 15 years from now, and you start seeing and wondering about those kinds of things, and you look at surveys and you start taking a look at what they're saying, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Barna Group did a survey uh, on the belief that Jesus is God incarnate. And what their research showed was that 43% of those that they, um, they surveyed said that Jesus was God living among humans. Now think about that, 43%, not even half. Our culture's changing. 31% believed that Jesus was uniquely called to reveal God's purpose in the world. In other words, not that he was the son of God, but that he was uniquely called into this world to kind of show us the way to find God. Uh, 9% said that Jesus embodied the best that is possible in each person. In other words, that whatever that best in, in all of us, that Jesus kind of embodied that and showed us what that looked like. 8% said that Jesus was a great man, a great teacher, but that he wasn't divine. I find that a little disturbing. If you look at surveys from 2005 until when this one was done, 2015, in that 10-year period, you're seeing a consistency of 8 to 10% drop in the belief about who Jesus is and about what God, who God is and about the scriptures. We're seeing it in the decline of the church in America. Less and less people are seeing a need for God or even recognizing God. In fact, I think of uh, Joshua 2.10. You remember, you know, Joshua led his people into to victory and God gave them the land and they conquered the land. And it says in, Josh, in Judges 2.10, it says, it says, then there rose up another generation who did not know Joshua's God and the works thereof. In other words, in one generation, after they conquered and, and, God, and took the land that God gave them, in one generation, they forgot about who God was. Didn't even recognize him in one generation. And I think we're seeing a time where now people are losing sight of who God is and what the scriptures are and what they mean. I'm finding more and more that when you talk about things in the Bible, you used to, when I was a kid, used to talk about any story in the Bible. It seemed like everybody knew something about the Bible and some relevance in regards to the scriptures. But nowadays, I'm finding more and more people don't even know the basic truths that are taught in the scriptures. And we're moving away from the scriptures more and more and more and moving away from, uh, from God and, and the meaning he has in life. And, and, and we're redefining him, and we're redefining who Jesus is. More and more people are talking about Jesus being a good person, or Jesus being someone who kind of showed us the way. And, and now I've even read about, the, and I've mentioned in the past, the Christ consciousness, that, that, the, that Christ is the spirit, and he kind of he leads us this way, but he really leads us to a greater intellectual level and a greater emotional maturity, rather than, than understanding that God Set him, sent him into a world of, uh, of a humanity that was in, enslaved by iniquity, enslaved by sin, and who was on a crash course to judgment. 
and that Christ stepped into that world because God first loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so, the, so that God sent his son into the world to, to change the course of humanity into destruction, rather give them life. And yet we see more and more people talking about finding the divine within us and that Christ would show us that and, and that we would become more divine and more understanding. Uh, it, it, it breaks my heart, but it's the reality of the world and the culture that we're, we're living in and where we're headed. Apostle John takes up this, this gospel and he writes it and he tells us why he writes it. He tells us he writes it that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the sent one of God that believe and believe that he's the son of God and believe in him, believing in him, you shall have, uh, have life. That life indeed is literally the idea that you would have life in Christ. So John writes that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God and believing in him, you might have life. There is no life outside of Christ. I really believe that. I believe that with all of my heart. To have Christ is to have life. To not have Christ is not to have life. And you might say, Greg, we all breathe. Yeah, I understand we all breathe the same air. But we don't have the same essence. And we've been created for him, not for ourselves. It is in Christ that we find meaning and truth in our life. And the more that we, we, we redefine who Jesus is, the more that we lose out on the understanding of the message of the gospel and the power of God at work in our lives. So when John picks up this pen and, and he begins to write this account in the Gospels, we also have to understand something else about John. John was, was one who was firsthand account. He heard Jesus say these things. He saw Jesus heal. He saw Jesus do these miracles and to do these things. He, he touched Jesus. We see him in, at the Last Supper leaning up against Jesus. He, he, he knew this account. He knew this person. This is who he, who he was. And in fact, the best witness isn't a firsthand account. And this is John. John sits down and he begins to write these things that you might believe. And you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He began in chapter one. He held nothing back when he said, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then he tells us down in verse 14 in that same chapter, and the word became flesh. So we begin to understand that he's talking about Jesus and that Jesus was God. That, not that Jesus was just another man, but that he was fully God and fully man. He was combating some of the theology of his day when some were saying that Jesus was like a ghost. He wasn't really physical, where Jesus was a man who became God. He was dealing with a lot of different theologies, no different than today. There's so many theologies that come in and try to redefine, redefine who Jesus is and what he is and what he has said. And the reality is John was there. John saw this and he tells us in chapter one, he tells us that the word became flesh, that Jesus was God. He was the God man, fully God, fully man. He tells us about John the Baptist who sees Jesus coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That in Jesus, he came to provide redemption. That all who would believe in him would be, 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 uh, be forgiven and they would be delivered and have new life in Christ. We look, at, we look in chapter three and chapter four. Remember, he talks to Nicodemus in chapter three. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus can't understand that. What do you mean must be born again? 
You must be born anew. You must have a new life. Because humanity was on this, this crash collision course to destruction because of iniquity. Just as sin entered through the world through one man, Adam. And it, and it threw humanity in the clutches of sin. And there's no way that humanity could find its way out of that condition. And yet the scripture tells us right there in John chapter 3, John writes, For God so loved this world, this world that was on a collision course, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him, whoever's on this crash course that believes on him, shall not perish, shall not face judgment, but have everlasting life a new life in Christ. And we saw that as, as John records that account between Nicodemus and Jesus. In chapter four, we see him talking to the Samaritan woman, a Jews talking to a Samaritan and a rabbi talking to a young woman. And here he is talking to her about the living water, this water that she comes to every day in order to provide life. He talks about the living water that, that gives eternal life and that he provides that, that, that life and that, um, that life that sustains them, that eternal life that comes through him. But then as John is writing and as he's penning this gospel, in chapter five, there, there begins a kind of a shift He's not talking to individuals as, as much anymore, but to the crowds. We begin also to see that the crowds become more hostile. The, the Jews and the Jewish leaders are finding themselves wanting to persecute and even seeking to kill Jesus. And in chapter five, we begin to see some of the reasons why that they want to persecute him and why they want to, want to kill Jesus. In chapter five, in the beginning, we see that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem he, he enters in by the gate and he enters into this place called Bethesda where, where there was porches and these places where the sick and the lame and those that were crippled, that they, would, they would sit around. You see, they believed that, that, that the angels would come down and stir up the water. So when they saw the water stir up, they would try to get into the water first, believing that by getting into the water first, they would be healed. And so here they are waiting around and we find Jesus walking into the midst of them and he comes up to a man who's, who's, who's had this infirmity for 38 years, he's been sick. He doesn't tell us exactly, apparently he couldn't walk because he couldn't get down physically into the water. He tells us in a second, he tells us he can't get into the water. So whatever it was that was causing him to be, to be laid up there, we pick up in verse six, it says, when Jesus saw him laying there, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, I think it's, I always find it interesting when you think about Jesus' questions a lot of times, where the statements that he makes, he, he's penetrating oftentimes to the very heart of the issue. When he, when he said this here, I always kind of like, well, Gosh, isn't it obvious they want to get well? I mean, that's why they're there, right? They're hanging out in these porches. They believe that, that if they get into the water, that's, if it stirs, that they get in the water, they'll be, they'll be healed, they'll get well. That's why they're there, aren't they, Jesus? And yet he says, do you wish to get well? The man responds to him in verse seven. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the, water, into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now notice he doesn't answer Jesus, yes. He doesn't say, yes, I want to be well. His whole faith and his condition that he could see the only way out was to get into the water. 
And his, his, his dilemma is that before I can get into the water, I don't have anybody that can pick me up and help me to get there into the water. But by the time I get there, somebody stepped down in the water before me. His faith was that in that pool. He didn't understand this person who stood before him to ask him, do you wish to be well? His faith wasn't in a Jesus. His faith, was, faith wasn't in the son of God. His faith was in that pool. And here he is, he's, he's almost literally complaining to Jesus about, I can't get there. I can't get whole. And so Jesus responds and Jesus says to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. Now notice Jesus doesn't even address the issue that's going on here. He doesn't address that he's putting his faith in the pool. He just tells him to arise. Take up your pallet and walk. In fact, it's interesting. The the tense here is to keep on walking. It wasn't just that he kind of stood up for a few minutes. He got up and he began walking and he kept walking. He tells him to take up his pallet, that word pallet, you know, I always think of like in the warehouses where they put, you know, boxes and you have a forklift come. That's not what he's talking about. And the word is literally like a mat or a bed. It's, it was something that you would, could roll up, put under your arm and carry, kind of like a bed roll, if you will. It was a poor man's bed. It was a bed of a person that, that struggled to provide for themselves. Often it was the sick and it was the weary. It was those that were outcast. It was that, that person's bed, and he tells them to take that up and to walk. And look what it says in verse nine. And immediately the man became well and took his, up his pallet and began to walk. I think that's so cool. There wasn't any kind of time frame. There, there wasn't rehab. Like when I had my knee replaced, I remember I went through weeks of rehab, you know, and they, they, they created more pain, you know, in order to get you where you can walk better, right? It, it, there was all this rehab. That's not what took place. Immediately he got up. There was strength in his legs. There was strength in his body. And he began walking. He takes up his bedroll and he begins to walk. Praise God, right? What a miracle. 38 years. In fact, we'll see in a minute, there's a crowd in the place. I would imagine there would be a crowd if somebody that you knew for 38 years uh, was, was so sick they couldn't walk and, and they were, had this infirmity that, that just could not allow them to function in life and all of a sudden they're up walking around. Wouldn't you want to go see that? I would. I want to go see it. Is it real? I, wanna, I might even say, can I touch your muscles? Is there, is there, you know, is, is there real muscle there? Is it, what's going on? What's, what's taking place? I want to know the account. And he gets up and he begins to walk. Now, John reveals in the last part of verse nine, he he reveals a little bit of what's going on here. He says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. That's an important detail in the story. I mean, why would it matter what day of the week that Jesus spoke to somebody and told them to get up and walk? Why would that matter? But But it was an important issue. In fact, he says that on the Sabbath, it was a day that was to be set aside. It was a holy day that we were set aside unto God. In fact, if, back in, if you were to go back to Ecclesi- uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 and following, it says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days and you shall labor and do all your work. But, on the, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. It is, it is, you, it is, in it you shall not work, do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. The word holy literally means kind of the idea of setting apart. It's something that is so holy it has a very specific purpose where it's a very specific uh, intent. So, so when, when God set this out in the Old Testament and he says to keep the Sabbath day holy, he was talking about setting that apart unto God. I, I, I think probably most of you, you know that like Chick-fil-A, when you look at them, right? The, the founder and the owner of the Chick-fil-A was a very strong believer. And you never, I mean, how many times in this room you go, oh, I want Chick-fil-A. And you drive in there and you go, oh yeah, it's Sunday. They're not open, right? And part of it was because he set that day aside. He wanted that day to be set aside as holy. Being in the restaurant business, I, I know how owners think when they're trying to make their sales, right? So you, if you extend your hours, you hopefully you increase your sales. So it looks good, especially if you're in great debt and you're trying to tell the banks why you can pay your, off your loan. Whether you're trying to explain to, your, to the board why there's funds, you, you start adding days. I can remember back way back when, when stores were not open on Sundays, or if they did open, they wouldn't open till afternoon, you know, after church, right? And then, then the, the issue of business and trying to make a profit, and you realize, well, if I add another day, I add the amount to my sales, and I mean, I wonder how much Chick-fil-A would add to their sales if they started opening on Sunday. But he set it aside, and he kept it holy. And it's a picture of us keeping it holy. Well, what... What happened was, is when, we, when the Old Testament didn't really define what work was and, and really kind of assumed in the sense of the way that we do our work or our jobs and that we set aside a day unto the Lord and we give it to him to recognize him in our, in our lives and his goodness and his mercy. That's why we come on Sunday mornings to worship, to thank him for the blessings he's given us throughout the week, for his goodness in our lives, right? To recognize him and to praise him. I, I hope you came this morning to give to God and not just to expect from God because God's been providing all week long. This is our opportunity to praise him for that, to hear what he has to say. And so they kept that day holy. Well, and the rabbis in their oral traditions began to label different things that were work. In fact, they came up with 39 activities that they defined as work that you wouldn't necessarily find in the, in the scriptures. And one of them is that if you were to pick up something and carry it from one place to another, they defined that as work. And therefore, you were breaking the Sabbath, therefore, you were in sin, and therefore, you, you were, you were in, in judgment. And so, here this, this, this guy had picked up his pallet, his bed, and he began walking. And verse 10 tells us, therefore, the Jews were saying to him, who was cured, it is, it is the Sabbath, and you, it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. It's interesting that they recognize the fact that he's cured. I'm glad they said that in the scriptures, but their focus was, was, on, the, was on the bedroll. It was on breaking the law. Here was a man who for 38 years couldn't walk, and now he's walking around, and all they saw was the bedroll. They, they missed the message. These miracles were to define and, and to, to tell the people that the words that Jesus was speaking were true. But they were focused on the bedroll. We do that. We do that all the time, don't we? I can remember a church when I was in Bible college that we went, in, went into and the previous pastor and the folks were having a little bit of difficult time with our message of grace because the previous pastor taught that women never wore pants in the church. 
Like, where does that say that? You know? God forbid. I remember they talking one time this lady bringing food to the church to help this family in need. And the pastor met her at the door and wouldn't let her even bring the food in. Why? Because we begin to look at the palate, don't we? We begin to look at the bed. And we don't see the miracle of what God has done. We become so focused on sometimes our activities and our legalism that we miss the power and the grace of God in our lives. And we miss the grace of God at work, changing us from, from this, this place of where we were in darkness and now we're in light and beginning to, to understand this walk with God, this, this vibrant walk, personal relationship with the almighty God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's very easy for us to begin to look at the, at the bedroll rather than at the life and the, that God has done and changing our lives. And that's exactly what happened. They missed it. It was a sign to them that the words that Jesus was speaking were true. Remember Nicodemus in chapter three, he comes to Jesus by night. What did he say? He said, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. That's why Nicodemus went to search him out and to have a conversation with him because he, he saw what Jesus was doing and he said, hey, this has to be from God. I wanna find out more. This, this here was another sign to them that they should be believed and hear the words. But that's not what happened. In fact, what he says in verse 11 is that he answered him, this is the man that had been cured, answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet and walk. Verse 12, they asked, they asked him, who is the, one, the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? Verse 13, but he, but he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a uh, crowd in that place. So here's this picture that, that Jesus heals this man. He's walking around, a crowd picks up, which I think would be very natural if somebody had walked for 38 years begins walking around. And there's a crowd there and Je Jesus slips away and the man doesn't even know the name of the person who healed him. He doesn't even know what, who he is. Verse 14, it says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. So he finds out that it's Jesus. And it's interesting, he says, do not sin anymore. I'm just gonna say this for a minute. The older I get, the more and more I understand why God hates depravity. The older I get and the more lives I seem destroyed by sin, the more and more I understand why God hates depravity. You know, we, people wanna focus in on God and say God's a hateful God. But the issue is, if we understood what depravity has done to humanity, we would understand why God hates it so much. When you start seeing lives broken and tormented because of iniquity, and they don't even understand what is going on in their lives and how depravity has them at the very crust of their, of their life. And they're in the chains of depravity. And we, and we think, oh my gosh, how can they ever do that? Well, if you understood depravity, you would understand that when men and women turn away from God and they begin to walk in their own way, depravity takes control like you can't believe. You see, it's when we set ourselves aside. If you, if you went back and you saw the Greg Lingle 30 years ago, God forbid, 40 years ago, you would see what God has done in my life. 
and how he has changed me. Some of you know me really well, and you know I am a fallen person just like everybody else in this room. I'm no better, no worse. I'm just fallen and helpless except for the grace of God. And it's as I've walked with God and begin to know him and to begin understanding what righteousness is and, and the grace of God at work in my life, do I begin to understand that statement to not sin anymore lest something worse fall upon you. It's amazing to me how we don't understand what depravity is doing in our lives and the way it breaks up people and relationships. It's, it's, it just amazes me. Dear people of God, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against principalities and and powers that we don't even understand because of depravity in this world. And it's by the grace of God that we have hope. In verse 15, he goes on, the man man, says in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made made him well. Now, I don't know about you. When I was a kid, we used to have a word for that. We said, man, he ratted you out. Right? I mean, it's just like, gee, I found out who it is. Let me go tell the Jews who it was. I don't know if he, if he did it because he was genuinely answering their, their question, if he did it because maybe he was worried about being in trouble for picking up his mat. Maybe he didn't, he didn't fully understand the power of God yet at this point. And so he tells him, I, I don't know, but he goes and he tells him. And then it says in, in verse In verse 16, and this is the reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. There's a kind of an interesting sequel here that is taking place that leads us into verse 17. You see, in verse 12, the Jews didn't understand the miracle that had taken place in front of them. They just want to know, why are you carrying this this bed? Why? Why? The man doesn't understand, but he finds out, so he comes back and he answers them and he tells them it's this Jesus. Now the Jews are making an accusation to Jesus. They're justifying their persecution of Jesus because he's breaking the Sabbath. He's breaking the law. We have the right to persecute him. He is at fault. He is breaking the law. He is is to be judged. And they begin to, they persecute him. Now in verse 17, Jesus responds and he says, but in contrast to their judgment, but he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Now that word answer there is literally has kind of the idea of to make an answer to a charge. It's literally making a defense for breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus responds by saying, my father Now, the Jews would call God their father. Others would call God their father. But the way that Jesus words it here, if you were to look in the Greek, it literally has the idea of of a peculiar relationship, a unique relationship, that Jesus is saying, God, my father. It's kind of like I have five children. I have three boys and uh, two girls. I'm their father. It's a unique relationship that I have with those five people that I don't have with anybody else in this world. They're my children, and I'm their father. It's a peculiar relationship in that that relationship is one that we bear together, and there can't be anybody else added to that, right? So there's that picture, and Jesus is saying, my father, this, this is my father, not, not your father, my father, my father God. And he goes on, he says, he says, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. In fact, what Jesus is declaring here as his defense is that he is equal with God. 
He's saying, my father, that, that just as he's God, I'm God. And there's equality there of who we are and that, he, that he's equal with God. And that becomes his defense. The reason they're persecuting is because he says he's, uh, because he says he's uh, doing these things on the Sabbath. But now it goes to another intensity in verse 18. For this cause, therefore, the, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The, the Jews didn't miss it. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. That Jesus wasn't just breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus was calling God his father and himself equal with God. So much so that they wanted to kill him. Now, think about it for a second. How can people say that Jesus is something else when Jesus said this? When Jesus identified himself as God. And not only did Jesus identify himself that way, but the Jews understood exactly what he was saying to the point that they were ready to kill him. They were ready to take out his life for blasphemy, to call himself God. Jesus made it very clear that he was God as he spoke to them. And John wanted us to understand that as we read through this account, that that Jesus was calling himself God. And even though the Jews were seeking to kill him, they were seeking to kill him because that he was making himself equal to God. It was his relationship with God. In fact, if you remember, I said, anytime you see in the gospel of John, the the phrase truly, truly, it literally means it is so, it is so. And, and, and when you see the double emphasis, there's, there's an emphasis there. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, or it is so, it is so, what he's about to say, you need to understand what he's saying. He's making an emphasis a point. So look at verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, it is true, it is true, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something his fa- he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does, in, does in like manner. So the picture is Jesus is saying, what I see my father do, I do. What I see my fa- hear my father say, I say. So when Jesus told the, the man to stand up and to walk, he was doing it in complete unity with the father. And even though they were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath, Jesus was saying, I'm working because my father's working. I'm seeing what my father's saying and I'm seeing it. I'm hearing what my father's saying and I'm, or doing, and I'm doing it. There's this picture of such a unity between the father and the son and equality. And the Jews totally understood exactly what he was saying. In fact, he goes on, he says in verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Now, I believe there, there's, there's the idea that we're, I think in a way, what Jesus is saying is, the Father's shown me all these things. Has he shown you? No, the Father loves me. And he has shown me all these things. And I'm doing these things. And you're going to be marveled. You're going to marvel at them. You're going to marvel at the signs and the miracles that he does. But not only that, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the power of the gospel to, to, to deliver one from the iniquity. Greater things, you you should be marveling over these things. In verse 21, he goes on, he says, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. 
That, that, that God gives life is the way that Jew always understood, but now Jesus is saying because of the equality with the Father, he gives life as well. Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Why? Verse 23, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he, does not, he who does not honor the, the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And the picture here and the, and the idea is such, there's such unity, they're so close in who they are in the truest sense of the form that to, to honor the Father is to honor the Son. The judgment of the Father is the same as the judgment of the Son, and the son, judgment of the Son is the same as the Father. There's complete equality going on here. And Jesus is teaching this, that they would understand that God has sent him, that he's God in the flesh. Verse 24, Jesus again says, it is true, it is true. So let's listen. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. It's, it's kind of unusual here that the focal point of faith for being saved is the Father. Usually you hear that reference, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, the Son. And you see that throughout Scripture. But Jesus here puts a little twist on it, and he says, he says in verse 24, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, the Father who sent me. And the picture is, is there's such unity in the truest sense of the, of the, of the idea that, 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 that to love the Father, to believe the Father is to believe the Son. To believe the Son is to believe the Father. There's no separation. In fact, it's impossible, let me say this. It's impossible to love the Father and to reject the Son. You can't do it because they are equal, they are God. And the Jews were wanting to love the Father and they were rejecting Christ. We're living in a world that wants to know a God, we wants somebody to tell us, but we're rejecting the hope of salvation, Jesus Christ. The person of God in his Son, that he delivers us. And we're missing, in a world that we live in, we're missing the message of the gospel. We don't live in a Christian environment anymore. You realize that, right? We're not in a Bible belt. We may be more religious in Mansfield, but today, on a day that is Sunday, when we're to recognize God and worship him, we don't have enough seats in our churches and all the services in this whole town to sit everybody if they wanted to come to church today. And if you think through it, there's probably not even a third of the people in our own community who go to church. Let's even take it further, who know Jesus Christ and are trusting him for their salvation. Dear people of God, this is a message for all. And people are missing it. And we're allowing the world around us to redefine who Jesus is. And we can't. He is God. And to believe in him is to believe in the Father. To believe in the Father is to believe in him. It's not possible to accept one and to reject the other. Jesus goes on in verse 25. He says, it is true, it is true, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. It's kind of interesting. There's this, this idea in theology of already, not yet. Um, it's, it's kind of this idea that Today I stand here in Jesus Christ. I'm placed into the family of God. 
because of my faith in Jesus and the work of Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so therefore I know positionally I am placed into the family of God. I know today that I am saved and I am trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. I have nothing else. I don't have a card to pull out. I don't have a lot of good works to pull out. I'm pretty sure my bad would outweigh my good. I have nothing but faith in Christ and what God has asked me to believe. I also believe that God is working in me and we call this kind of progressive sanctification that God is working in me through his spirit. If you looked at my life 30 years ago to today, you would see how God has been chipping away at the ugliness of my life, at the, the iniquity and the depravity and that God is constantly working and changing and it will continue on until he comes. But I'm also looking off to the time when, when Jesus would return and that great and glorious day, may it be today, when Jesus would return and, and he would resurrect us physically, I would no more have this broken knee or this, this ache and this pain or the sin of this body. But once and for all, I'd receive the glorified body. And there's this idea of a future resurrection, physical resurrection. And so he says, he says to you, saying an hour is coming and now is. There is a time now to believe when the dead shall hear the voice of God and those who hear shall live. In other words, they will become alive. Verse 26, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. Remember, the Jew saw God as self-existent, life in himself. He did not need anything else to exist. God in and of himself is God. He breathed into the life in the nostrils of Adam that life might take place. And we see life in humanity because God gave life. And the Jew would see that and understand that. And he would see that God exists in and of himself. And now Jesus is standing here and Jesus is saying, the son has life in and of himself. That Jesus self exists. He doesn't need everything around him. That he is God and he exists in and of himself. And the Jew would have been so angry at this point in fact, he goes on in verse 27 and, and Jesus says, and he gave him authority to execute judgment. That God gave Jesus the authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. They shall come alive and shall come forth. Verse 29, those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed uh, the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There's, there's Jesus sitting here saying, he is God, he's self-sufficient. To the Jews, the father was the self-existent one. He was the judge. But the father and the son are in such unity that Christ is making a full declaration of being equal with God. You see, when I look at this and I take the Bible to be true, I don't try to change anything in it. I take this Bible to be true. I take this account from the apostle John who was there with Jesus, who heard Jesus and touched Jesus and saw Jesus do these things. I take this account to be true. And he describes that Jesus taught that, that he was equal with God. So how can someone say that, that Jesus was uniquely called to reveal God's, God's plan? How can they say that? They have to ignore the very teachings of Jesus. They have to ignore the words of Christ. 
How can they say that? How can they say that Jesus was just the embodiment of all the good in all of us? That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus did not teach that he was the good of all embodiment. He taught that he was equal with God, that he was fully God, fully man. He proclaimed a unity with the Father. How can people say that Jesus was just a good man or a good teacher when Jesus said that he was much more, that he was, he was God himself? How can we say that? I mean, what teacher would I go to in school who I knew was lying about the very essence of who he was and then walk away and go, wow, that's a good teacher? I would go, man, he's crazy. He's an idiot. I mean, how can he make those claims? Or how can I say that, wow, this person's really a good, good example of what humanity is like? And yet at the same time, they're going around saying they're the savior of the world. Are you kidding me? Who would believe that? I had a really good friend lately, just recently, share with me that in his quest of, of knowing God, he would go around and he'd ask people, why do you believe Jesus is God? Why do you believe in Jesus? It was interesting because he did this for a while and he shared with me all the different responses. In fact, he reminded me of my response to him. It was quite funny. But I'll never forget what he said, why he came to the place where he knew that Jesus was our savior. He said, you know, I found it funny. He said, well, I've watched and I read about the disciples. He said, do you know those guys scattered when Jesus was taken prisoner? They scattered. They went back to fishing. They went back to all these other ways of life. And there was their guy they'd been following for three years hanging on a cross and he died and they buried him and they just went back to their old way of life. He said, but what's interesting is after the resurrection, you see these guys dying for this faith. You see them writing these words. Here John wrote 30, 40 years later because he believed in Jesus that he was the son of God his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He said, these guys all went to their graves believing in Jesus. Yet when, they were when he was taken captive, they scattered. He said, he said how, how can you not, these guys who saw Jesus, how can you not believe that Jesus is who he said he was? I thought that was really interesting. Very simple, isn't it the truth? When you walked in today, did you just think of Jesus as just, you know, somebody we wanted to make happy? Did you see Jesus coming to church and here is just something that we're supposed to do to be good? You're gonna, you're gonna miss the boat. Jesus is about a relationship with an eternal God through his death, burial, and his resurrection, through what he has done, that to believe in him is to have life. That's why John wrote this letter. That's why he wrote this gospel that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, sent one of God, that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and believing you might have life in him. Let's pray. Father God, I just lift up to you this morning, us, your people, just that you would speak to us, Father, that maybe this morning some of us were coming in and beginning to, to doubt and was uncertain about our faith. 
And that we just need to be reminded of who Jesus is. Our world is flooding in, in our schools and in our education and our advertisement, our, our TV shows. And God, it's just everywhere. And it's redirecting people's thoughts about who you are. Even in our community, Father, it's a good community. There's good people here. But more and more people are, are turning away from you. They're turning away from the truth of who Jesus is. And dear God, may we not be a people to be deceived, to begin to, to serve other gods, to begin to serve other, other ideas, or even to serve ourselves, but that God, we would yield ourselves to you, that you would use us for your glory and your purposes. Father, just speak to us, your people. You know each and every person in here better than, than even some of us ourselves. May your spirit move and do as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.